well, for the next hour and a half, we're just going to dive in. I'm kidding. You're thinking like, are we going to get through that in 35 minutes? I'm wondering too. Uh, anyways, hey, uh, my name is Austin. Uh, one of the pastors here. Uh, so happy that you guys are, have joined us to uh, learn about Jesus, to dig in his Bible, to sing about his glory. And so uh, we've been going through Hebrews, and we just we'll click along, verse by verse. And so you can open up your Bibles to Hebrews 4. If you don't have one, we've got some free ones around the corner for you. You can take one on your way out or grab one now. Uh, but as you're getting to Hebrews 4, uh, let me ask you this. When's the last time that you desperately needed rest? Can you think a lot, and you're thinking like, right, like right now, you know, like I need a nap, you know, like when's the last time you desperately needed uh, rest? Well, um, I used to say that I, uh, I used to think I had a perfect immune system, right? So I never got sick through like junior high, high school, college, all this. You can ask my parents and then Kristen, my wife, you can ask her too. But about a year ago, uh, I wasn't feeling well for a couple days. And uh, so I'm like throwing up and my wife's like, oh, perfect immune system, huh? I'm like, it's allergies. Like, you know, like puking. And she's like, I don't think it's allergies. You need to, you know, like you're in denial. And so uh, anyway, so I had to uh, admit that I don't have a perfect immune system. And, uh, and so I got better. And then, it, and then it came back like two weeks later and I was sick again and some, something kind of different and for a couple days and got better and then it repeated. And so for about two months, I, I was on and off again sick and I called my brother-in-law who's a doctor. I'm like, dude, what's happening? Like, am I dying? You know, like I'm getting sick so much. I've never been sick in my life. And, and, uh, and he's like, dude, and he asked me some questions. He's like, I actually think that you're overexhausted and, and you're too stressed. And, and I'm like, you know, what do you mean? You know, and, and, and so he just kind of laid through some things. He's like, you need to rest. And so that weekend, uh, I spent uh, an entire day downstairs in the basement, just like relaxing, watching Netflix, uh, napping. Kristen bought, brought me some food. Hey, doctor's orders. Okay. You know, and so I'm doing all that. I'm loving it. It's been great. And then, um, uh, but I still didn't feel good. I'm like, what the heck? And so I'm like, maybe we need to take a little vacation. So we took a couple days off, went and, uh, and, and got away from work and, and town and all this stuff away from phone and just watching football. It was great. But again, I still didn't feel well. It was so weird to me. I'm like, dude, your rest isn't working. And, uh, and so finally I was like in the, you know, quest to find rest, I, um, I took a day and just said, man, I'm just going to spend one whole day with Jesus. And so I did. And, uh, and it was crazy. Like, I immediately felt better, like gradually better. It was crazy. And just, you know, no phone, no emails, no work, no responsibilities, just Jesus and, and me and his, my Bible and journal and guitar. And it was beautiful and so refreshing. But here's what the Lord revealed to me in that season. Um, when I am exhausted and tired and weary, my knee-jerk reaction and my first instinct is to rest my mind and my body, okay? And, 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 and while those things are important, like rest for your mind and body is important, the most important thing is to rest your soul, right? Like that's the, that's the thing we have to do. That's what I really needed rest in. And so, you know, I'm, it was a year into our church plant, uh, you know, new dad trying to process that. We just bought and fixed up a house and uh, all the responsibilities of being a pastor that I just wasn't used to. And I was just, my soul was weary. It was tired. I didn't know how to handle any of it. And I needed rest at a soul level. Um, but how are you feeling? Like right now, are you tired? Are you worn out or burnt out? Exhausted? Um, this world is constantly promising us rest. Like you can go on Facebook or Instagram or TV or whatever, and there's this constant promise of rest. Like everyone wants it, right? More vacation days, more sleep, uh, more days at the beach. Like what, you just go through lists, right? More vacationing or retirement. Everyone wants rest. But the problem with all of those is that none of them have the ability to give you the rest that you really need right? Rest at a soul level. And we're going to find in our passage this morning that Jesus is offering us a real 
rest that, that, that's, that's infinite and so much better than more sleep or more vacation days, right? Um, and so just to kind of cap on what I mean by rest when, when we're looking at this passage, uh, rest uh, is rest from our works and rest in Jesus' works, right? If I was just to give a clear rest from our works and rest in his works is kind of what we're going to look at and the help, yeah, helpful kind of defining things, write it in your notes, Bible, whatever, but rest from our works and rest in his works. And so let's jump in and read verses 1 and 2. 1 and 2, Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to fail to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So my first point this morning is that rest doesn't come by hearing, it comes by believing. Rest doesn't come by hearing, it comes by believing. Now, notice in verse 1 what kind of rest he's referring to. This is important. It says that um, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. So this isn't like all-inclusive vacation in Cabo rest, okay? Uh, This isn't like three-day-long weekend rest. This isn't even wake up without an alarm or a kid rest, okay? This is even better than that, right? Um, This is God's rest. Like he's promising that you can enter into the same rest that he experiences. So check this out. Right now, God is in heaven, uh, sovereignly, victoriously, peacefully overseeing everything, right? He has control over everything. I mean, the rest that would come from God, the rest that he experiences, the rest that he has is extraordinary. And in his unthinkable love, he says, you can experience that same rest too. You can experience my rest. No fear of what will or won't happen. No anxiety, just perfect peace and rest in God's sovereignty, right? In the finished work of what he's done. And verse one says it's still offered to you. It's amazing news, right? But in the response to this offer of rest, the author says, let us fear. Like he says the response to, um, to this promise of rest is fear, lest any of you should have failed to reach it or to take hold of it. And so there's this gloomy dilemma that every single one of us face. Uh, beautiful rest offered, and yet some of us won't take hold of it. Some of us won't grab it. And if you're like, if God's rest is available, then how could anyone turn it down? How could anyone not take a hold of it? Well, uh, we just finished chapter three. We spent two weeks. Ricky and Mo preached on it. Did a great job. And it's drenched in the Old Testament, right? So we learn uh, uh, about the wilderness and stuff like that. So just to recap, uh, here's a quick recap. God's people, Israel, Israelites, are enslaved by Egypt. Egypt's a powerful force. Uh, Egypt uh, has been oppressing them, and they're enslaved to them. God loves his people, doesn't want them in slavery, so he sends plagues to Egypt. Egypt is uh, a horrible thing to happen to them and their land and their people. And so the Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, says, hey, I don't want anything to do with you guys. Leave. I want these things to be done. So they leave. Israel's freed. Hooray. Thank you, Jesus. As they're on their way, Pharaoh changes his mind and says, no, I actually want to attack them and chase after them. So he grabs his army, he chases after them and goes. And uh, there's this whole thing. And uh, Israelites are backed up to the Red Sea. They're going, where do we go? What do we do? And, uh, and God splits the sea. They walk across in dry land. How does that happen? God's great. And so they're walking through. Uh, Pharaoh and his uh, army are like, that sounds cool. And so they walk through too. But then God closes on them. Night, night. They're dead. You know what I mean? But the Israelites go free. And they're set free. And they're not in slavery anymore. But they wind up in the wilderness. And in their wilderness, when they're wandering, they actually start to get uh, ungrateful and, and, and mad and angry and grumble at God because they think wandering in the wilderness is somehow worse than being enslaved to Egypt. Okay, so that's where we are. That's where this has taken us. And this is where our passage is picking up right now in the Old Testament narrative. And it's actually rooted in Numbers 13 and 14, right? Numbers 13 and 14. So kind of recap what's going on in those two chapters. Uh, Israel knows, these people knows after being slaved from Egypt, that God is promising them a promised land. 
and it's a land called Canaan, right? And, and so uh, like all of us, uh, they're struggling to just purely believe that God will do what he says he's going to do. And so they do some recon to look, hey, what, what's this land look like? So they, they send 12 spies uh, into the land of Canaan. Uh, into the promised land to say, hey, how, what's the land look like? What's the food like? Are the people strong? Are the, you know, are the walls fortified? Like all this stuff. So the spies go over. They spend 40 days snooping around and figuring all this stuff out. They come back. Here's the news. Hey, everybody, uh, great news, man. It's beautiful. Milk, they got milk there. It's whole milk, you know what I mean? It's a, uh, they got, uh, they got, you know, whatever. Uh, it, they got honey, it's so good. They got fruit, all this stuff. Everyone's like, yes, oh man, that's gonna be so good. Oh, kind of bad news, by the way, that's why I say, yeah, the people are really tall. Like, and the walls are really fortified, and the soldiers are really strong. And then all of his, all these Israelites start to panic and freak out, and just like they're losing their minds because they're thinking in their minds and their perspective, there's no way we take it over then. How are we supposed to go in and take the promised land if all these people are tall and big and strong and all this stuff? So they start panicking, giving up on life, and then two men speak up, a man named Caleb and a man named Joshua. They're two of the spies. So out of the 12, just two speak up, and here's what they say in Numbers 14, 7 through 9. You can read it on the screen or look in your Bibles, uh, Numbers 14, 7 through 9. They say, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred to us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them right? Amazing speech. He gets them hyped up and excited and all this stuff. Hey guys, man, I know these guys are big, but do you, did you remember that the sea was big and it was like parted, you know? You remember that time when you saw that like fish swim by and you're like right next to it? Yeah, like that happened. Our God is that big. I know they're big, but don't forget how big our God is and what he can do. Man, if God wants to give it to us, he will and he wants to give. This is his promise. And in response, verse 10 says that the Israelites wanted to stone them. Okay, so imagine like someone standing up in church. Hey, let's take a step of faith, city light. Let's plant a new church somewhere. And everyone, hey, grab your stones out. You know, we're going to kill them because they want to take a step of faith. Like that's literally what happened, okay? And so, uh, so God is so angry at their unbelief that he says, he conde- condemns them and says, you will not enter my rest. Because of your unbelief, you will not enter into the promised land. And you're going to wander around for 40 years, like the 40 days that you wandered around the promised land, not taking of it, not believing my promise. You're going to wander for 40 years and none of you will enter it. Only Caleb and Joshua are going to enter because they actually believed in God, right? So this is what's happening, right? They didn't get to enter the promised land because they didn't believe. Now, look at Hebrews 4.2 with me real quick. Look at this. Hebrews 4.2. Therefore, uh, uh, okay, for good news came to us just as to them. Good news, Caleb and Joshua's encouragement, God wants to give us rest. God will bring us to the promised land. Next phrase, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Okay, they didn't enter the promised land. They have the good news, but they didn't believe, so they didn't enter the promised land. And then last phrase, why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They did not, Israelites didn't believe like Caleb and Joshua, they didn't have a faith and trust in God's promises. Therefore, they didn't get to enter the promised land, right? Only Caleb and Joshua did. Now, in light of all of that, right, it's, the author says that our response should be fear. Now, why would we fear in response to the unbelieving Israelites' story? Because we can make the same mistake, right? 
we can make the same mistake as they did. They had the good news right in front of them. Hey, freedom and rest offered to them. And rather than taking hold of it, they didn't believe. And because they didn't believe, they never got to enter into God's rest. That's frightening. And so, Sila, hear me when I say this, please. Hearing alone does not save you. Hearing alone does not save you. And so whether you've heard the news since you were two years old, the good news, the gospel since you're two years old, or you've never heard it, here, you, here it is, you and I are broken beyond our ability to repair ourselves. You and I have failed in sin, and we are, um, we, 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 we've rebelled from God, and therefore we're separated from him. But the good news is that he didn't leave us there. He actually came to us to die for us. That Jesus came to pay for the sins that you and I committed and died the death, the death that you and I deserve. This is the gospel, that by faith in Jesus, orphaned rebels can become beautiful, beloved children of God, right? This is the gospel. This is the good news that we cling to. And so hear me when I say this, you are not a Christian because you have heard the gospel. You are a Christian because you've believed the gospel. There's a massive difference between those two things. Hearing does not save someone. The Israelites heard the good news. They knew all about it. They could tell you when it came and who told them and all the aspects of the good news, but they didn't believe on it. They didn't act on it. And, and I say this, sobering and just this mindset, but one of the most heartbreaking realities as a pastor is knowing that I will communicate this good news to a thousand people this morning, and there will be people among us that know the gospel, that could tell me the gospel, that can explain the gospel, but have not placed their faith in it. There will really be people in this room like that, and it's heartbreaking. And I'm ple- and I don't say that to you know uh, fear to push fear on you or anything. I, I say that in an honest level to say this is really what's at stake. You, you're not a Christian because you've heard the gospel. You're a Christian because you've believed the gospel, right? And so I'm begging Jesus to use His word to move you from hearing the good news to actually believing the good news. To let Jesus have full control over your life. To rest from your works and rest in His works. So in other words. The good news of Jesus penetrating your ears is worthless unless it penetrates your heart, right? And, and, and rest comes by believing, not just hearing. And the only appropriate response to the good news is faith, right? Caleb and Joshua had faith. They believed in God. As they heard the good news, they believed in it, unlike the rest of all these people, right? The difference is that they had faith and they got to enter into God's rest, not because they were good people, because they believed. They were ready to risk their lives to stand on the promises of God. Hearing is different than believing. Um, so I just got this uh, little like electric like hoverboard skateboard thing. It's called a one wheel. I love it. Uh, uh, my wife's one rule, Kristen, is that I wear a helmet. Okay, and so uh, first time I'm going out to ride, I'm like so excited, you know. And and I like well, I'm like right at the door. She's like, sweetheart, where's your helmet? And I'm like, okay. You know, I already look young. They're gonna think I'm a junior higher. You know, like like my neighbors are like, who's that kid? You know, I am a pastor of a church. And so, anyways, um, and so I'm like, okay, sweetheart. And so I go and as is, love it. Well, Nate Morgan, he's on staff with us, one of my best friends. He uh, comes over to ride it, and uh, and uh, I'm like, hey, bro, I know it's like super lame, but you gotta wear your helmet, like it's really dangerous. He laughs and starts walking away. So here's a little picture of what happened five minutes later. Yeah, dude, dude got wrecked, okay? He did not, he wasn't wearing a helmet. He, and so anyways, that's Nate. He wasn't feeling, I've like never heard him say ow in his life. You know, we know each other for over 10 years and he said ow on that moment, okay? Now, here's the thing. Nate heard that he needs to put a helmet on. 
right? Nate could tell you right now when I told him and how I told him to wear a helmet, right? Nate could actually tell you all he believes, that it's beneficial, right, on some level. Nate could stand up here right now and tell you all of the reasons why wearing a helmet is the safest thing for you to do and all the reasons why you should wear a helmet, but he didn't believe it, right? Like, he, he didn't believe it. And this is what the author is meaning when he says to fear, right? Listen, It's possible for people to spend their entire lives in church, hearing the gospel, going on mission trips, sharing the gospel, being in city groups, giving to a church without ever actually believing in Jesus. And so the question that maybe is rising among all of us, okay, Austin, what you're saying in this verse, does it mean that we spend the rest of our lives fearing that we don't even really know Jesus? Is like that how the Christian should spend their life is fearing whether or not we know Jesus? No, absolutely. That'd be a miserable life. But what this is saying is that we need to take an honest look at our lives and ask ourselves, do I believe in Jesus like Nate believes in wearing a helmet? Or or do I believe in Jesus like Caleb and Joshua believed in God? Right? Am I agreeing intellectually with facts and saying, yeah, that's true? Or am I placing my full faith in it to rest from my works and rest in his works, right? Rest doesn't come by hearing. It comes by believing. So that's point one. There's a lot in that. There's a lot to get to. Uh, So Hebrews 4, let's read 3 through 11. Next section. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day called, or today, saying, through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered rest has also rested from his works just as God did from his. My second point is rest is an invitation, not an accomplishment. Rest is an invitation, not an accomplishment. And so in verse 3, uh, the author is quoting Psalm 95, when he, uh, 9511, when he says, They shall not enter my rest. It was already referenced back in chapter 3, and then the author quotes it again in verse 5. So three times the author repeats God punishing unbelief by saying they shall not enter my rest. And this is referring to back in the wilderness. But you have to wonder, why? Like, why bring it up so many times, God? Why say this again and again? Well, uh, there's two main reasons why God repeats himself in the Bible. Uh, One, uh, because we're stubborn, right? One, first reason why he repeats himself is because we're stubborn. Now, I remember uh, throughout um, college and after college, um, hearing over and over again in the Bible these accounts of this idea that God wants to use our finances to better his kingdom, that he'd actually call us to give a portion of what we make and what we have to his kingdom, to his church, so that the gospel might advance. And so I heard that over and over and over again. I heard it in sermons. I heard it in uh, studying my, my Bible. And I'm like, yeah. And I thought of every excuse, friends. I was pushing snooze on the Lord's command to do that, right? So I'm thinking, hey, you know, I'm in college, and, and I've got some debt, and I want to pay off debt. I know the Lord doesn't like debt, so I'm just going to have a free pass on giving, you know? Or, or I thought, you know, my excuse is, you know what? I'm saving up for a ring, and the Lord wants me to get married, so I should probably, it's okay to save to that. My giving will go to the ring, you know? And so I'm not going to give to the church. Or I don't really make that much, and so my giving wouldn't even really make an impact, so I'm just not going to give. I mean, I thought of every single thing, right? And 
all the time, verse after verse, it's this reminder that God is calling me to give. And uh, in my stubbornness, I was like, I don't know. And then God used a friend and a passage to stir my wife and I's heart to give. And so we have, and it's been amazing. It's such a joy. But I use that as an example. We do it all the time with so many things. I'm still doing it. Like there are still stubborn places in my heart that I haven't given Jesus control over that um, you're right, that he's just speaking to. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I want to. You know, there's just that aspect of it. We do it with all these types of things. And he will consistently repeat himself until that sinks in. And so to be clear, God will repeatedly bring things up until uh, we give in to his glorious will, right? He'll speak into our stubborn hearts. So the first reason uh, that he repeats himself is that we are stubborn. The second reason that he repeats himself is because we're forgetful. So I remember years ago, new, new in my faith, a guy told me, a friend told me, hey, preach the gospel to yourself every day. And when I asked him why, he said, because you'll forget it every day. And, uh, and it's so true. Like, I literally forget the gospel every single day. I mean, I start to think, you know, God loves me or he likes me a little bit more because I've been good today or because I've read my Bible today. God is a little more approving of me, which isn't true. Uh, or I think, you know what? God got me into the family of God, but it's kind of my role to keep myself in there now. It's kind of on my shoulders to, to get better and to stay in this family. There's so many things that, that I start, ways I start to forget the gospel. And uh, verse after verse in the Bible reminds our forgetful hearts that we are loved, cherished, and valued, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen. Like that's the gospel that brings forth. And so the author is graciously reminding our stubborn and forgetful hearts that there is rest available for you. There's rest available for you. Verse 1, this promise still stands. Verse 6, it remains for some to enter the rest. Verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For every they shall not enter my rest warning, there is a gracious invitation to believe in God and enter his rest. Listen, God will not let you move on from this point until it is ingrained in your heart, in your head, that rest is joyfully available to all who believe. And he will not let you move on this from this point until it is ingrained in your heart, in your head, that like the unbelieving Israelites that died in the wilderness, if we reject the promises of God, we will die without entering rest. That's the reality. That's what's at stake. And then verses 3 and 4 bring up the creation narrative, right? God creating. So after six days of creating the, the whole universe, the blooming flowers, the colorful sunset, the playful animals, the vast galaxies and stars, the ocean depths, and Adam, God rested. And you have to ask, why, why did he rest? Like, why did God rest? It's not like he could get tired. It wasn't like on the sixth day, he's like, man, I'm tired. I need a lawn chair and a sit down and take a nap. Like, no, like God, God is infinite in his ability um, and energy, right? He, he doesn't get tired like we get tired. And so why would he rest on the seventh day? One, because his work was finished. And two, because he was promising us rest, right? All the way back in Genesis, God is promising us rest, um, and so there will be a day after all of our toil that we get to stop and, and celebrate and look at the, the perfect finished work of God, rest from our works and rest in his works. And so in these verses so far, God has given us a biblical theology, like a, like a flyover of the whole Bible, right? Like we've got to see the creation story in Genesis to the unbelieving Israelites in Numbers to King David in the Psalms, and now verse 7 brings us to today, right? So listen, there was rest available in creation. There was rest available in the wilderness. And brother, sister, there is rest available today, right? Now, so far in Hebrews, Moses has been one of the people that's been popular, right, and mentioned. But uh, 
now we get a new name, Joshua, that gets brought up, a new person. Remember, it was Caleb and Joshua that believed in the promise of God to enter into Canaan. And so after 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, Moses dies and Joshua becomes the new leader. And Joshua actually leads the people into the promised land, right? Hooray, this is awesome. The Israelites are finally in the spot where God promised them to be. uh, They've been waiting for it, milk and honey, beautiful land and fruit and scenery and peace finally. But verse 8 says something stunning. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. In other words, as beautiful as this land is, there will be a better, truer promised land. As good of a leader as Joshua is, there will be a better Joshua who will lead you into a better promised land. In Hebrew, actually, Joshua and Jesus are basically the same name, and they both mean, they both mean like Savior, salvation, or God saves. And, um, and so Joshua leading his people into the promised land was a temporary rest right? They would still have hardships. They would still toil to stay alive. Um, In their effort, they would still have people to come and attack them and take it away, right? But Jesus, the better Joshua, will lead us into a rest that's eternal and cannot be stolen away. Jesus will lead us into a rest that is permanent, rest from our works and rest in his works. And then verse 10, y'all better get excited. This is like the verse defining rest in our passage today. Verse 10, look at it. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Here's what this is saying. This is so important for us to get. The invitation to rest is an invitation to throw away your spiritual scorecard. It's an invitation to stop trying to earn God's love and start trusting that Jesus secured God's love for you right? This is the invitation. It's an invitation to place your faith in Jesus's works, not yours, and Jesus's strength, not yours, and Jesus's victory, not yours, and Jesus's resume, not yours. No more proving, no more earning, no more frantically wondering, does God love me? Have I been good enough to get into heaven? No, the gospel is a proclamation that our works could only get us to hell, but Jesus's works could actually bring us to heaven, right? This is the beautiful news Rest is not something you can accomplish someday, right? Rest is a gracious, undisturbed invitation to start trusting in Jesus' finished works and stop trusting in your own, right? To be clear, there is no rest for the person working for their salvation, right? We trust in Jesus' finished works, right? Rest from our works and rest in his works. This rest is offered to you today, friend. And so after explaining the beauty of this rest and the invitation to it, uh, he compels us and encourages us in verse 11 through 13. We'll, we'll, We'll finish our section. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any, uh, any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. My last point for us is that sometimes you've got to work to rest. Sometimes you've got to work to rest. Now, I've made a rhythm in my schedule recently where I take an entire day in the month to spend with Jesus. So no work, no emails, no responsibilities, just Jesus, my Bible, my journal, my guitar, and, uh, and rest, right? And uh, it's amazing. But the funny thing about it, and by the way, I need this if I want to be a pastor for the rest of my life. Like, I definitely need this. Um, but uh, the funny thing I found about it is that I actually have to work to rest. It's really odd. But I have to 
tell my staff, hey guys, I'm going to be gone today. Like if anyone needs me, I'll be gone. You know, ask my wife, hey, is it okay for me to go? Uh, you're right with Gracie. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then I have to find the perfect spot, right? Because y'all know you need the perfect spot to spend time with Jesus, right? The hammock, you know, like whatever, the, the, the nice grassy area, somewhere alone. I can't be around people where I'm going to have a conversation and all this stuff. So I need to be alone. So it takes a lot of work to actually rest. And, um, and, here, and here's why this matters. Verse 11 says that we should strive to enter this rest, right? And so City Light, I want to be clear. Rest is not natural in any of us. We are not natural resters. Like it doesn't happen to us. And so that's why it says to strive for it. And so as I have conversations with people in the room or wherever, uh, the consistent theme is when I'm asking how they're doing, oh man, Austin, I'll tell you. It's a good, good season, but it's busy. Yeah, real busy. Got a lot on my schedule. Oh, cool. That's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, you know what I never hear? Oh, you know what? It's just a season of rest, you know, I just don't really do much nowadays, and I never hear that, you know, everyone's like, I'm busy, we play it up, Even whether or not we are busy or not, we play it up, but in our busy world that measures success by how full your schedule is, we very rarely celebrate rest in each other, and I think that's sin, I think that's an honest outflow of sin, that in our busy world that measures success by how full your schedule is, the last thing we celebrate in each other is rest, right? And, and, and I mean, what if we talked less about home improvements and accomplishments and promotions and opportunities and talk more about what we're intentionally doing to stop and just be with Jesus? I mean, no one in the room needs to remind me to do my job. I will do my job. What you need to remind me is to stop doing and just start being with Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I need. No one in the room has to ask me, hey, Austin, what did you accomplish this month? What I need from you is to ask me what, if I've stopped to think about what Jesus has accomplished for me. You know, like that's what my heart needs consistently. Rest does not come natural to us. As odd as it sounds, friends, if you want to rest, you need to put in the work, right? You need to schedule a day to get away. You need to um, talk to your husband or your, your, your wife and say, hey, man, I need this. Is there any way we can work this around? Or your friend or whatever it is, some responsibility to be able to work. You need to get... Set your clothes out the night before. Take a shower the night before so you can wake up 30 minutes earlier and just spend time with Jesus and not be rushed. We do not drift towards rest. We drift towards busyness. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest, right? Now, the author thankfully gives us one main way to enter the rest. Verse 12, the word of God, the Bible, right? This is, this is the thing he's saying. If you want rest, then go to this. And among the, all, all, this is unique, among all the describing adjectives that the author could have used to explain what this is and what it does, he uses living and active, right? Not like wise or beautiful or expansive or historical. He uses living and active. And um, for a long time, I thought the Bible was this old, ancient book that my grandma read, and I couldn't understand it in KJV. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, I don't even know what those words are. And, uh, and it had dust on it. You know, I, I don't know. And I just thought it was this old, historical, encyclopedic history book that had no relevancy for my life. But verse 12 says something different, doesn't it? It says it's living and active. No, the Bible isn't a dead, old history book. It's a beautiful book that's living and active. In other words, this book is unlike any other book you've ever read before. It, God uses it that in, in different ways, and it's crazy. Verses I memorized years ago are, are now bringing up in my mind again, and they serve a totally unique purpose. Like verses I memorized, oh, I love this part. Now we're like, oh my gosh, like God's used it for a different way. And the words don't change. Like this is the same Bible that's always been. And yet God wields it for a different purpose. Through his spirit, he uses his word to 
to move in our hearts. It's beautiful. It's living and active. And to kind of give you my relationship with the Bible, uh, and I think all of our relationship, I simultaneously cringe and rejoice when verse 12 says that God's word is sharp and that it pierces. I simultaneously cringe and rejoice. I cringe because the Bible is God's scalpel for spiritual surgery. I, 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 he has used his word to cut out sin in my life, and it hurts. Verse 13 says that we're all naked and exposed before God. So no thought we've ever thought or action we've ever done has been hidden from him. I cringe because God's word has exposed my sin to me. My rebellion, my pride, my lust, my laziness, right? It's exposed all of that. I cringe because hiding is comfortable, Right? Uh, I cringe because it's easier to neglect I have a problem than to admit I need to be fixed, right? And when I was 19 years old, I heard a guy speak um, on, on Jesus calling Pharisees whitewashed tombs. And Pharisees were these religious leaders of Jesus' time, and they would kind of hide behind this facade of good works and religious activity. And Jesus says, just like a whitewashed tomb is beautiful on the outside, on the inside it's dead and rotting. And God used that word, used that passage, used that sermon to cut my heart and you know, compel me to repent, to turn away from my sin, to admit of my addictions and my struggles. It was, it was beautiful, but I cringed because it hurt. And it wasn't fun to be exposed and pierced by the word of God, but, friends, but I simultaneously rejoice that it's sharp because God is a master surgeon. Amen. He never cuts unnecessarily or unintentionally. Every cut has a glorious purpose and a beautiful outcome. I rejoice that it pierces through the most stubborn hearts, right? Because no one can withstand the sharp word of God. The most notorious sinner or the most rule-following valedictorian cannot withstand the word of God. I rejoice that it's sharp because as as I read the word over my daughter, I'm convinced that he will pierce her stubborn heart with his word, right? I rejoice because while ignoring you have a deadly brain tumor might be easier, it is far better to admit you have it and allow the surgeon to take his scalpel and take it out so you can have a long, beautiful life. Uh, to kind of think through the Bible, it, it, it's, it's like a revealing mirror that does two simultaneous things. As we look at the Bible and read the Bible, it does two things. As you look into it, you see yourself for who you've been. You see yourself for who you've been, all of your sin, all of your rebellion. It's all there before you. That's the cringe moment, right? But at the same time, you see who Jesus has made you to be. You see who Jesus has made you to be. That's the rejoicing moment. God's word exposes what you've done, but it also reveals to you what Jesus has done for you, right? How you've been weak, but how Jesus has been strong. How you have failed, but how Jesus has been perfect. How you um, have sinned, but how Jesus has saved. This is what the word does simultaneously. And so friend, brother, sister, if you want rest, go to the word. If you want to be freed from the guilt of shame and the pressures of sin, go to the word of Jesus to be reminded there is mercy and grace offered to you plentifully today. Do the hard work of getting away and opening God's scalpel for him to do spiritual surgery in your heart and and do a redemptive, beautiful work in you. City Light, would we be a people that go beyond hearing and actually believe? Would we be a people that uh, joyfully accept the promise of God to enter into his rest? And would we be a people that hunger for God's word daily to reveal our sin and compel us towards Jesus' grace so we can find rest for our restless souls, rest from our works, and rest in his works? Amen.
Now we get to take communion this morning, which is a beautiful family meal of people that have get to rest in the finished work of Jesus. And so when we, t- when we break the bread and give it to you, it represents his body broken for you. And dip it in the juice, it represents his blood shed for you. And I just want to say this, this is a collective family meal to, to respond and celebrate Jesus' work is finished. On the cross, Jesus said it's finished. Therefore, we can rest from our works because they're always failing, they're always fleeting, and they're never finished. But we can rest in Jesus' works for us, right? And so if you're a believer, if you placed your faith in Jesus, even if it's this morning where you've moved from intellectual belief to actual faithful belief in Jesus, love to invite you and to take communion with us. And I just would, we took communion at the eight, and um, I'd just love to encourage you as you're standing in line and waiting to reflect on the finished work of Jesus. And as I took communion this morning, I just was like, right as I took it, just to say, man, I'm resting, I'm resting from my works and resting in your works. If the Lord would compel you to do that, to remember in light of that, this is Jesus' finished work on the cross for you. Amen? Let's pray.